Happy New Year. Good to see you. Good to see you all here today. If you have a Bible, please turn in that Bible to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and uh, someone in the back will hopefully bring one to you. Uh, And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, I've been preaching through the book of Luke, at least for the last couple of weeks. Uh, And uh, if you've been with us, you know it's actually been a couple of years uh, that I've been preaching through the book of Luke. We're now in Luke chapter 22, uh, getting near the end here. Uh, Luke wrote this um, book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote it. Uh, initially to a man named Theophilus who knew some things about Jesus, but Luke wanted him to be certain about Jesus. So Luke wrote this long letter to Theophilus so he would know about Jesus. And we're now in Luke chapter 22. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Luke 22, 1 to 13. Let's pray. Well, Father, we just look to you again now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ all of our sins are forgiven, that you have thrown them as far as the east is from the west. We thank you, Father, that in Christ Jesus you are always compassionate with us, always kind to us, always loving us, always pursuing us, always caring for us, providing for us, protecting us. We thank you, Father, for your care for us in and through Jesus Christ. And we just look to you now, Father, in and through Christ, and ask you, Father, to bless us as we look into your word. Father, please do not let us just kind of gloss over this part of your word. Lord, we believe that you breathe this out for our eternal good, and we we do pray, Father, you to open our hearts now so that we might receive eternal good through this part of your word. We thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd." Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Amen. Well, we are now turning a corner in 
the book of Luke this morning, uh, we have now, for the most part, moved away from the teachings of Jesus here in this book, and we are now moving into a much more straightforward narrative of the events that lead up to the death of Jesus. In just a little over 24 hours now, Jesus will be killed. The events in the second half of this passage here, they probably occurred on Thursday morning, and Jesus will be killed on Friday. And Luke now gives us here a pretty straightforward account of the events that lead up to the death of Jesus. And as we move toward the cross here, we will now see lots of moving parts. Lots of different people doing lots of different things. Jesus, the disciples, the religious leaders, Judas, Herod, Pilate, and on and on. Lots of different people doing lots of different things now. But here's the thing. The events that unfold here over the next couple of chapters... The conflict that plays out here, this thing is not ultimately a conflict between flesh and blood. No, this thing is ultimately a conflict between heaven and hell. What we will now see here is a a cosmic drama of sorts, a, a, a cosmic confrontation between God and Satan. Daryl Box says that the death of Jesus was ultimately a cosmic battle of the greatest proportions. And in the passage we're looking at here this morning, we see, we see some plans being made. We, we see two different sets of plans being made here. Two sets of Passover plans that will ultimately lead to the death of Jesus. And the first plan that we see here is a plan of destruction. It's it's basically a a murder plot, a a plot to murder Christ. Luke says in verse 1 that the, the Passover was now drawing near. The, the Jewish people back in Jesus' day, they, they had several festivals that they would celebrate every year. And the Passover was one of the most important festivals. It, it, the, the Passover was really kind of two festivals rolled into one. You, you had the Passover festival itself, which was essentially a one-day affair. But the Passover festival was then followed immediately by another another seven-day festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Jews had started celebrating those two festivals over a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. Way back in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, over a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, the Jewish people were in captivity in Egypt. They were were slaves in Egypt, and God 
delivered them. And, and here's how God did it. God told the Jewish people there in captivity in Egypt, he told them that on a certain day, every Jewish family should kill a lamb. Should kill a lamb without blemish, a lamb with, without imperfection. They should kill it, spread the blood of that lamb on the doorframe of their home and roast and eat the lamb. And the Jewish people did it. That day came, they, they did as God commanded, and later that night, God then sent a death angel through Egypt that killed the firstborn child in every home in Egypt that had no blood on its doorframe, ultimately killing many Egyptian children. But when the angel saw the blood on the homes of the Jews, that death angel passed over those homes and spared their children. The Passover. And the Jews were delivered that night from captivity, the exodus from Egypt. And because they had to leave Egypt quickly, they didn't have time to leaven their bread for the journey. They had to take unleavened bread with them, a Passover lamb and unleavened bread. And after they left Egypt, God then told the Jews to celebrate these two festivals every year. The Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. Once a year, from that point forward, every Jewish family would remove all the leaven from their homes, kill a Passover lamb, roast it, and eat it. An eight-day celebration in all. And, And those two festivals were designed by God to remind the Jews every year of their past deliverance from Egypt. That's what yearly festivals typically do. They remind you of past things. You know, once a year, uh, uh, we have a festival on the 4th of July, and Americans uh, then eat lots of food, and uh, they, they light lots of fireworks. I lived for a couple years in the inner city in Kansas City, and man, I'm telling you, the 4th of July in the inner city, at least there, uh, sounded like an absolute war zone. I mean, bottle rockets and, and, and M80s thrown into the sewer all night long. That place was an absolute war zone. And, and man, we do that type of stuff on the 4th of July to remember our nation's fight for independence in the, the 1700s. We, we basically do it to celebrate our deliverance from England. <laughs> and the Jewish people celebrated those two festivals every year to celebrate, to remember their deliverance from Egypt. And at this point in the book of Luke, those two festivals are now just hours away. And man, listen, this thing, these festivals, at this point in history, this was a huge deal. Every Jewish man was required to travel to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. And those Jewish men typically took their big Jewish families with them. So there were typically lots and lots of people in Jerusalem during these festivals, during these eight days. 
Most commentators estimate that at this point in time, right here, right here, when Jesus is standing here, right before Passover, most commentators estimate that there were probably at least 200,000 additional people in Jerusalem. Okay, that city, if you ever looked at a map in your Bible, it's not a huge city. This place was probably very, very crowded and also very, very noisy. People scurrying around everywhere, people buying and selling things, animals everywhere, people making all kinds of preparations for these two festivals. Just think of the Mall of America right before Christmas. I know that many of you, don't look at me like you didn't do this. I know many of you, you waited until about two days before Christmas to buy your Christmas gifts this year, and you then suffered tremendously for your sin because the mall was so stinking crowded. <laughs> the Mall of America was packed with all of America. Merry Christmas to you, right? You enjoyed that. And right here, the city of Jerusalem was basically packed with all of Israel. (laughs) A lot of it, anyway. And the religious leaders there in Jerusalem were making some Passover plans. (laughs) But their plans had very little to do with the Passover. You look at Verse 2 again, Luke says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death for they feared the people. It's really ironic. This massive religious holiday is coming and the main Jewish religious leaders in Israel are not thinking about the holiday. They're thinking about killing Jesus. For several chapters now, the Jewish religious leaders, they have wanted to do away with Jesus somehow. Most of them do not like Jesus at all. Jesus has publicly exposed their sin on multiple occasions, embarrassing them repeatedly in front of the Jewish people. They're also jealous of Jesus' popularity with the people. They think Jesus is some type of messianic imposter. They have wanted to kill Jesus for quite some time, and they are now actively looking for a way to do it. But the problem is that a lot of people in Israel really do like Jesus at this point. They, they, they really believe that Jesus is some type of prophet sent from God. They have been flocking for the past few days to, to hear Jesus teach there in the temple. Many people still really do like Jesus in Israel, and these religious leaders are terrified of what the people might do if they do something to Jesus openly. So they are trying to find a more secretive way to get rid of him because they fear the people. Mark 14.1 says that they were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth. And kill him. And all of a sudden, this amazing opportunity comes knocking on their door, handed to them on a silver platter by a man named Judas. 
If you look at verse 3 again, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Judas, as Luke says right there, Judas was one of Jesus' original twelve disciples. Jesus selected Judas to be one of his twelve original disciples back in Luke chapter 6. But here's the thing about Judas. Judas was never really a true disciple of Jesus. Never really a true believer. Never really a true Christian. No, Judas looked on the surface, like a true follower of Christ. He he looked like he had a genuine faith in Christ, but under the surface, in his heart, no real faith. Judas was like a lot of people today. Judas was just like a lot of people in America today. A lot of people in America today who have a profession of faith in Christ. They say with their mouths that they believe in Christ. They they, they trust in Him and and follow Christ. But but in their hearts, there's no real possession of genuine faith in Christ. They're nominal Christians. And that means they are Christians in name only. And let me tell you, there are lots and lots of nominal, name-only Christians in America right now. That's what happens in a country where there's no persecution of Christians. That's what happens in a country where you can basically get ahead in the culture by being a Christian. The church becomes flooded with nominal, name-only Christians. And there are a lot of them in the churches today in America. Many of them were baptized at some point. They attend church services regularly. They may even try to read the Bible and pray at times. But deep in the heart, they have never truly submitted to Jesus Christ as their master. They do not truly trust in and follow Christ and seek to obey Christ. Jesus is not really their Lord. They are false disciples. And that was Judas. Judas was what the Bible calls a wolf in sheep's clothing. He looked on the surface like a sheep. But under the surface, Judas was a wolf, a false disciple hidden among true disciples, an enemy within the camp. And listen, Jesus knew Jesus knew that Judas was a false disciple even when Jesus first selected Judas to be his disciple. Jesus knew it. John 6.44 says that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. In John 6.70, Jesus looked at his 12 disciples and he says, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew that he had chosen a devil, a wolf in sheep's clothing, to be one of his twelve. He knew it. He knew Judas was not a true disciple. And yet Jesus chose him anyway. Why in the world would Jesus do it? Here's one reason. Because Jesus was going to use Judas. Jesus was going to use 
the evil heart of Judas, the, the, the sinful heart of Judas, to fulfill his eternal purposes. So Jesus, man, he knowingly placed a wolf in sheep's clothing within the camp. Jesus knew he was a false disciple. And man, Judas, this, this wolf in sheep's clothing, he now begins his defection. He begins his departure from Christ. And you know what? That is what nominal Christians typically do. That is what false disciples typically do. At some point in time, they depart from Christ. They either depart, they either desert Christ outright, just blatantly reject and walk away from Christ at some point, or they just kind of gradually fall away from Christ more and more more. They slowly stop attending church services, maybe. Or maybe they keep attending church services, but they just go through the motions, sleep their way through those services all of their lives. Stop fellowshipping with Christians. They stop trying to read the Bible and pray. They depart. Gradually from Christ. And please listen to me. A professing Christian who departs from Christ, that's not a true Christian. That's not a true Christian. There are people all over America now who have departed from Christ and yet they think they're a Christian because they were baptized. Because they went to services at one point. That is not a Christian. It's not a true disciple. And listen, when, when, when a professing Christian departs from Christ, it's not that they just lost their salvation. They had it and then they lost it. No, it's impossible to lose a true salvation. No, they just proved with their departure that they never did have a true salvation. They're just showing their real colors. And that's what Judas is doing right here. He was never Never saved, never a true disciple. And he's showing his true colors here. Judas Judas now goes to the religious leaders and discusses with them how he might betray Jesus to them. And one of his main motives was probably money. Judas, deep in his heart, he didn't really love Jesus. He loved money. Like a lot of Americans. The book of John says that Judas... Judas was a thief that was stealing money from the disciples' money bag the entire time he was with Christ. And Matthew 26 says that when Judas goes to these religious leaders here, he says, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus up to you? That's probably money for Judas. That was, that, was, that was his God. And I'm telling you what, when Judas shows up here in front of these religious leaders, these guys are thrilled. These guys are thrilled. You see what Luke said there in verse 5 again? And, and they were glad and, and agreed to give him money. So he consented. And sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. They were glad 
And I think that's probably a bit of an understatement in our English translations. The Greek there could also be translated as, they rejoiced. These men overflowed with joy when Judas showed up in front of them. This was more than they ever could have hoped for. Are you kidding us? An insider? One of Jesus' twelve apostles? A traitor? Willing to betray him in private? This was perfect. Judas just simplified matters for them in a major way. So they agreed to give Judas money, a measly 30 pieces of silver, according to Matthew 26, roughly $7,500 today to betray the Son of God. And Judas now begins to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus Away from the crowds. But man, here's the thing. You know, when Judas initially goes to these religious leaders here, Judas doesn't go alone. Did you catch what Luke said? You look at verse 3 one more time. Then Satan entered Judas. And Judas went too. The religious leaders. Man, this conflict here, Luke's trying to tell you, this conflict that is brewing here, this thing is not ultimately a conflict between flesh and blood, but a conflict between heaven and hell. This right here is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. Man, here, here in the book of Luke, we, we have not seen a lot of activity from Satan lately. The devil. Now, Jesus has mentioned Satan several times in his teachings. Jesus has also cast out some demons, but we haven't seen a lot of obvious, overt activity from Satan himself ever since Luke 4, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness and tried to get him to sin. Jesus passed passed that test in the wilderness. And in Luke 4.13, Luke said that when the devil had ended every temptation there in the wilderness, the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And this right here is the opportune time that Satan was hoping for. That, that Satan was waiting for. The time for him to act again. Michael Wilcox says, quote, Jesus' ministry has throughout been a running battle with the powers of darkness, but we now see principalities and powers mustering their unseen array as they had not done since the first confrontation with Jesus in the desert. End quote. Satan entered Judas, Luke says. And man, what, what Luke meant by that exactly, we don't really know. Luke is clearly talking here about some sort of very intense form of satanic or demonic possession. It's 
When you see Jesus casting out demons in the Bible, he's not casting out the Lord of demons on most of those occasions. He's casting out little demons who serve the Lord of demons, who serve Satan. Luke says that Satan entered. Satan entered Judas here. Now, Luke could be saying it was just demons that entered. We don't know. But this is an intense form of satanic or demonic possession right here. Not, not the Hollywood type of demonic possession. You know, a lot of people in our day, I think they hear the phrase demonic possession and you get a Hollywood picture in your mind of like someone's head spinning in circles like in The Exorcist or something. Okay, Judas's head probably didn't spin in circles here. But Satan did, however, influence Judas in a new and powerful way here. Now listen, Satan didn't, he, he didn't force Judas to do something here that Judas didn't want to do. No, that's not how it works. Judas's heart was already bent toward evil here, already desiring to betray Jesus, probably for money. Judas had already given Satan an open door into his heart, and Satan chooses to enter it now and to influence and motivate Judas to do the very thing that Judas wanted to do. And why did Satan do it? Why did Satan enter Judas right here and and, and influence him to go to these religious leaders? You know why? Because Satan hates Jesus. Satan absolutely despises Jesus and Satan wanted to destroy Jesus. Man, way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, God promised, God, God promised that Satan, the serpent, would one day try to crush the Son of God. And here it is. Here it is. And you, you, you think about this passage, right? You think about what's going on here. Satan has essentially been waiting for this moment right here for hundreds of years. Waiting for an opportunity like this. Waiting for the Son of God to show up on earth. Waiting for a man like Judas to get close to Jesus. Satan has been waiting for this opportunity for hundreds of years. In the hopes that he will crush the Son of God and Satan is now on the move. And man, we, we, you now have here in the book of Luke this, this strange and, and very unholy alliance between Satan and, and the religious leaders and, and Judas. And, and a plan is now in place, this cosmic plan to murder the Son of God. And man, that... that That's the first plan we we clearly see here in this passage. A plan of destruction. But the second plan we see here is a plan of redemption. It's a plan of deliverance. You know, Satan was not the only cosmic figure here who was working out a plan. (laughs) No, God was too. A counter plan of sorts. Satan has a plan and Jesus 
does too. But man, at first glance here, when you look at this passage, it doesn't look like Jesus has much of a plan at all. Satan is planning here to crush Jesus, and Jesus just seems to be planning here for a meal. (laughs) If you look at verse 7 again, Luke says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So this was now probably Thursday morning. Passover feast would be celebrated in Jerusalem that evening, Thursday evening. And Jesus sends Peter and John here, two of his closest disciples, into Jerusalem to prepare a Passover feast for he and his other disciples. A pretty bold move, by the way, uh, to send two men to prepare a meal. (laughs) I know that many of you men, you can cook really well, but I'm telling you what, Jesus sends me to do this task right here. This will probably be frozen pizza. (laughs) This is going to be a a, a pepperoni Passover for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was bold here in doing this. He sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover feast. And these, these guys, you know, they probably had a lot to do here. Quite a few preparations, most likely, these two men had to take care of before that evening meal. Probably had to purchase quite a few items that morning. They they would have purchased probably bitter herbs, which represented Israel's bitter years of captivity. They also probably had to go in Jerusalem and purchase unleavened bread somewhere. Or Peter and John making unleavened bread somewhere. They probably had to go and buy wine in Jerusalem. They also probably had to purchase a lamb. And then Peter and John had to take the lamb to the temple grounds to sacrifice it. The lambs were sacrificed at this time. They they were sacrificed between 2.30 and 5.30 in the afternoon and evening. They, They were sacrificed in the temple courts in several waves. Tons of priests on duty at that time in the temple courts. And once the temple courts were filled with people, the doors to the temple courts were shut. People had all their lambs there. The Jewish people would slaughter their own lambs. And the priests would catch the blood in a basin that the people had brought. The priests would then throw the blood against the altar. And once all the people there in the temple courts had sacrificed their lambs, they'd open the doors and then they'd do it all over again, wave after wave of sacrifice in the temple courts. Peter and John probably slaughtered their own lamb, slitting the throat of a little baby lamb. And they then had to take the lamb and all the other items back to a room somewhere, Roast the lamb on a pomegranate spit and get the room and the rest of the food ready for that evening feast. These guys probably had quite a bit to do here. And as far as they know, they don't even have a room yet. (laughs) And listen, Jerusalem is absolutely packed. You don't go the morning of Passover and find a room in Jerusalem. Look at their question, verse 9. They say to Jesus, where will you have us prepare it? And Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. (laughs) You love Jesus. Peter and John, they're probably looking at him like, are you crazy? What are you talking about right there? And really, there's a couple of different possibilities there, I think. Jesus, he he could have arranged this room ahead of time. I kind of think he might have done that. Set it up earlier with some disciples in the city, and the man carrying the the water jar was then maybe a, a secret sign of sorts for Peter and John. Jesus didn't want the people to know just yet where he was. He still wanted to eat this Passover with his disciples, so he set up this sign of sorts. It it was typically only women who carried uh, water pitchers. Men usually carried water skins. So a, a man with a water pitcher would have stood out. Jesus says that this man is going to meet them when they, they, they come in. They, they follow this man back to his house and say to the master of the house, the teacher wants to know where the guest room for the Passover is. And it's possible that those words right there were some sort of passwords that the master of the house was looking for to recognize Peter and John. When you were a kid, were you ever in some sort of secret club that required a password to get in? My mother, she, she, when she was young, uh, her older brother had a secret club of sorts and the password to get in was ugga ugga boo ugga boo boo ugga and if you knew that password you could get in the secret club I've not forgotten that ever since I was a little kid I could be in the club my uncle Owen's club right now and it's possible that these words the teacher wants to know where the room is could have been kind of passwords for the master of the house and then he he leads them in and shows them this room that is already furnished and prepared for them that that's one possibility that jesus set this up beforehand but uh, it is also very possible that jesus just knew about all this stuff I mean, Jesus is God in human flesh after all, right? (laughs) Very possible that he just knew. There will be a man carrying a a pitcher of water. That will be strange, so you'll recognize him. I know he's going to be there. You just follow him. He'll take you to a house, and you ask the master of the house, and he'll just get it somehow, and he will show you a furnished room where we will eat the Passover. Very possible there, too, that Jesus just did that. But listen, whatever's going on there, everything ultimately happened just as Jesus said. You look at verse 13 again. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So man, you, you look at that. There's just some simple preparations there for a Passover meal. Satan, man, Satan has a plan here to crush Jesus. And at first glance, it doesn't look like Jesus as much of a plan at all. Satan has a murder plan. (laughs) And Jesus basically has a meal plan. Satan has plans for destruction and Jesus has plans for dinner. But here's the thing that Satan doesn't understand at this point. Jesus did have a plan here. And it was more than just a meal plan. Oh, Jesus had a cosmic plan here. Jesus had an eternal plan. Jesus had a plan here 
that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had all agreed upon before the world was ever created. And what was the plan that Jesus had here? Standing outside of Jerusalem? What was the plan that Jesus had here? What, what was, Satan had a plan here to crush Jesus. And as crazy as it might seem, Jesus had a plan here to be crushed. That was his plan. To be crushed. Jesus knows here that Satan wants to kill him. Jesus knows here that Satan will attempt to do it through Judas in Jerusalem during Passover. So what does Jesus do? He walks right into it. I think I'll go into Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. <laughs> Man, Satan has a plan to crush Jesus. Jesus has a plan to be crushed. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus, he wasn't just preparing for a meal here. No, Jesus was preparing for his own murder here. And do you, do you realize what's going on here in this passage? You realize what's going on? When the Jewish people were in captivity in Egypt, back in the book of Exodus, over a thousand years before this moment right here, do you know why God delivered them with these little Passover lambs? You think about it, God could have delivered them any way he wanted to. He could have just called lightning down out of heaven and blown to bits all the Egyptian homes there. We could have called fire and brimstone down out of heaven that would have destroyed the Egyptians like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, but God didn't do that. He used lambs. <laughs> Tiny little lambs. And do you know why God delivered the Jewish people there with these little Passover lambs? Do you know why God then had them celebrate this Passover feast every year? Had all the Jewish families slaughter a little Passover lamb year after year? Do you know why God did all that stuff? Here it is. Because God was planning from all eternity to send a greater Passover lamb to this earth. God was planning from all eternity to send the one and only true Passover lamb to this earth. You know what's going on here in this passage? When you step back and look at it, you know what's going on? When Peter and John, they head into Jerusalem here to slaughter a little Passover lamb, the much greater Passover lamb, the one and only true Passover lamb, is heading into Jerusalem for his slaughter. Jesus walking like a lamb to the slaughter here. Walking to his Passover slaughter. And why? That was the plan. It was God's cosmic, e eternal plan. Sa Satan had a plan to crush Jesus. Jesus had a plan to be crushed. The one and only true Passover lamb. A lamb without blemish. A lamb without any imperfections at all. He would be slaughtered and roasted with fire 
essentially, on the cross. In Jerusalem at Passover. That was God's plan. And man, it will happen here in just a little more than 24 hours now. And when it does, and Satan will be glad. Satan will be thrilled. Overjoyed. Ecstatic. The Son of God is crushed. (laughs) But here's the thing that Satan just doesn't get. In his slaughter of the one and only true Passover lamb on the cross, the only one who would ultimately be crushed was him. God had promised it in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. God said that Satan, the serpent, would one day crush the Son of God's heel. He would kill the Son of God temporarily. But in doing so, the Son of God would actually crush the serpent's head. The Son of God would rise again from the dead and kill Satan for good. (laughs) Satan had a plan to crush Jesus, but what Satan didn't get was that Jesus had a plan to be crushed. And in his crushing, in the slaughter of this one and only true Passover lamb, Satan would actually be crushed. And people all over the world would be delivered from captivity. Through the blood, the bloody slaughter of this Passover lamb, people all over the world would be delivered from captivity. And not just a captivity to Egypt, but delivered from a much greater captivity. Delivered from a captivity to sin and to death. Delivered from a captivity to Satan. Man, that is really great news For you and me, because the Bible says that all of us by nature, we are in captivity to those things. Slaves to those things by nature. We are all sinners, and because of our sin, we are enslaved to sin and death. We are enslaved to Satan. The good news is that the Passover lamb has been slaughtered. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, is crucified. Isaiah 53, 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed for our sin. And man, because because the Passover lamb did that, you, you can now be delivered from captivity to sin and death and Satan. But here's the thing. In order for you to be delivered by this one and only true Passover lamb, in order for you to be delivered from captivity, you must have the blood of this Passover lamb over the doorframe of your home. Over the doorframe of your, your heart. Man, a death angel will one day pass through this earth. Judgment will come. And every home, every heart that is not truly covered with the blood of that Passover lamb will be destroyed. Don't just say that you trust in Christ. Don't just say it. And then sleep your way to death. 
Or you repent, man, repent or turn away from your sin, cling to Christ, obey Christ, follow Christ all of your days. Get up and go after Christ. And when you do that, do you realize you are proving that you truly have a genuine faith in Christ? You are proving that you have truly spread the blood of the Passover lamb over your house, over your heart. And when the death angel then finally passes through this world, he will pass over you. Spared forever by the blood of the Passover lamb. Satan has a plan, a plan of destruction, but man, Jesus has a counter plan. A plan of redemption. Trust in Christ. Cling to him all of your days, the Passover lamb, and be be spared forever. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending a true Passover lamb, greater Passover lamb. We thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. Lord, I know many of us have heard that story before. I pray that that would never become dull to our hearts. Father, we thank you that people who are, who, are, who are enslaved in sin and death, enslaved to the powers of darkness, that people who cannot possibly free themselves from that slavery can be delivered freely because Jesus, the Passover lamb, has been slain. Pray, Father, you would give us faith, help us to trust, help us to follow all of our days. In the name of Jesus, amen.